Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at church. And thank you for joining us in our final week in our series on the Word of God. We've made it all the way from the beginning of the story of the Bible right through to the end. And we land here uh, in the final book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And uh, we, the reason we did this series was, as a church, we wanted to know the Word of God deeply. And that means going through all of Scripture and being as comprehensive as we possibly can. Uh, Paul, the apostle, during his ministry, we're told in the book of Acts, stands up before the church and he says to them, I did not shrink back from teaching you anything that was profitable. I taught you the whole counsel of God. That means he didn't pick and choose the bits that he thought people would enjoy the most. He taught the full thing so that he might be able to say at the end of his ministry that I told you the truth about God, the whole of it. And so our, our effort in doing that is to, is to do that, is to, is to preach the whole Bible and to preach it in full, the bits that resonate with our culture and even the bits that dissonate, and we'll see both this afternoon. And it's funny, as Jacob mentioned before, speaking on these kind of things, particularly the afterlife, is unusual for our culture. Because our culture lives in what you would call under the cloud of a secular sort of lining. Let me explain it this way. I was speaking to a couple from the States who were talking about their, their move from Arizona to Portland. So if you don't know much about those locations, they were going from Phoenix to Portland, which is basically going from the most sunny, or just about the most sunny city, to just about the most overcast. Now why you do that to yourself, only a church planner could tell you, but that's why they moved there. But um, the, to give you some perspective of just how different the experience was, in Phoenix, you get about 300 days of clear sunshine in the year. In Portland, you get about two months that is, where it's 40 to 70% clear. That's about as, as wide as you can stretch it. And the rest of the time, it's either overcast or raining. Now, needless to say, that has some impact on your experience. And what this, uh, one of these people mentioned, the wife said, that when she moved there, she actually got what was called... And I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find anything on it, but something called low ceiling syndrome. And it's the, it's the feeling that you get apparently when you move from a sunny city to Portland. Sorry to rag on Portland so hard, but it's just, these are just facts, okay? Interpret them how you will. But when, they, when, when, you, uh, when you go there, the idea that there's so much cloud cover actually starts to give people a sense of just being under a low ceiling all the time. And so it actually has a pretty significant effect on people's mental health. Part of it's physiological. You just, you're vitamin D deficient, so you have to take supplements and things like that. But, um, but what it gives you this feeling of is even when you're outdoors, even when you're outside, even during summer, it feels like you're just, it's, everything feels kind of claustrophobic. And people take a while to adjust to that. Now, I think low ceiling syndrome is the perfect illustration of our modern secular age. If you're not familiar with the term secularism, it comes from the Latin seculus, which means age or generation, and it's the worldview that says everything that's going to happen happens right now. There's no before life, there's no afterlife, there's no reincarnation, there's no final judgment or heaven, just what happens in our days on earth is everything that happens. So all meaning, significance, identity, anything that you're going to find, any happiness in life, it happens now or never. And in political terms, secularism is kind of more specifically around removing any religious kind of discourse from, from politics. But in terms of how day-to-day people live, it's basically an experience of life where all meaning and, identif- and identity are constructed without any reference to God or an afterlife or a transcendent reality. 
Charles Taylor, who wrote a massive book on our secular age. If you do any reading on secularism, he's probably in the recommended reading. It's an enormous book. But he says this, marking on how unique this is, this climate that we live in. He said, For the first time in history, a purely self-sufficient humanism came to be a widely available option. I mean by this, a humanism accepting no final goals beyond human flourishing, nor any allegiance to anything else beyond this flourishing. Of no previous society was this true. It is unique. Most people believe that all meaning and purpose is going to be found right now in the here and now. Maybe, maybe there are a God or gods or something out there, but if there are, they're completely irrelevant. Anything I'm going to find is going to happen right now in this age, in my lifetime. And it's put a ceiling on reality. It has cut us off from the heavens. And it's given life a kind of a sense of claustrophobia. Most of our concerns are shrunk down. We are no longer enamored with great concepts of God or the afterlife or some grand story that we're a part of. Our concerns are shrunk down. There's no sense of virtue or greater causes. What's to happen happens now. And we are mostly concerned with discovering ourselves and the daily worries of boredom or anxiety. And this has given life a claustrophobia. And even if you're someone who believes the story of the Bible, that this is the story that we're living in, it may have affected you significantly too. I read an article a fair while ago now about inner city church plants. We fall into that category. And it was just listing some of the really positive things that they'd observed as a pattern in inner city church plans and some of the, the question marks. In terms of the positives, what, what he noticed was that a lot of inner city church plans were great at explaining how it is that the gospel transforms your life right now. The, the message of the gospel is not just pie in the sky when you die, that living for Jesus changes radically how you live right now, today, every hour, every minute. But what he noticed was missing was much talk about the afterlife. Whether a judgment to come or the glories to come, both were missing. Maybe the air we breathe is so secular that it's even started to infiltrate the way the church thinks about the gospel. That maybe we've come to believe that the gospel has no final goals beyond human flourishing nor any allegiance to anything beyond this flourishing. That the main point of the gospel is that it would make you flourish right now and for your life to be more full and rich. Now that is absolutely true. But it is also unmistakably clear that this is the result of a much greater reality. That the main and central blessing of the gospel is that by the blood of Jesus we go from being children of wrath, facing judgment, to children of God adopted in forever with eternal life with Him. A loving Father. All other benefits of the gospel are downstream from this one reality that is coming. There is nothing clearer than at the very end of the scripture there is this. God is going to judge every soul who has lived. And there is only one way to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pray that we pay close attention to these things as we dive into his word this afternoon. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are an everlasting and good God. You love with an everlasting love. That while we were in sin, you sent Christ to suffer on our behalf. He might face the wrath that we deserve to bring us back to you. And Father, we pray that you would call our minds to remember that we are part of this great story, that you are bringing things to their conclusion, that you are bringing an end to human suffering, but that there is a judgment to come and that the time is now to spread the gospel as far and wide as we can. And Father, we pray that we remember this for the glory of your name. Amen.
So we're here at the end of the story. This is the final week in it. But where we started, if you haven't tracked with us, was all the way back here at creation. God creates his creation, funnily enough. Wasn't there anyway, whatever. Um, He creates his creation, as you do. And he creates a specific order. He creates all things. He creates a, a plan. And his kingdom was this, his people under his rule in his place. So he creates humankind, puts them in a garden, says, look, everything is here for you to enjoy. I've created it for you to flourish. And I give you one concern. Do not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humankind does. Sin enters the world. And God has to separate himself from his creation. They're kicked out of the garden. But God continues his plan that the whole earth would be covered with people living under his rule in his place. And so he starts with a guy called Abraham, who from beginning to end is a moral disaster. He tries twice to give away his wife because he's scared of losing his life. I, didn't, I also didn't mean to rhyme that, but it's, you know, let's just keep going with it. But uh, Abraham is not a good guy, but God is a faithful God. And he uses Abraham to build a family that eventually becomes the nation of Israel. They're living in Egypt at the time, and they become so large and numerous and threatening that Pharaoh decides he's going to subdue them in slavery for 400 years. After 400 years, they cry out to God, and God miraculously saves them from under the hands of the most powerful man in the world at that time. And he redeems them out and gives them their own place, and he establishes his people in his place under his rule. We finally have the kingdom of God when it all falls apart. Sin enters, the cycle begins, and Israel become the disaster that they were not meant to be. Israel becomes full of wickedness and evil and mistreatment until God, after warning after warning, can stand it no longer. And they are sent out into exile. And in his mercy, he brings them back, but it's never the same. The temple is a shadow of the former temple. The nation is a shadow of the former nation. They are really just in a holding pattern, waiting for God to send his Messiah who will establish his kingdom forever. And after 400 years of silence with no word from God, Jesus shows up and he comes preaching the good news of the kingdom, that he's going to establish it. But it's not the kingdom they were hoping for. The enemy that he has come to destroy is not the Roman occupying force that Israel hoped he was going to destroy, but destroy the true enemy of sin and death. And he does that by dying on the cross in our place and rising again to new life. And the risen Jesus gathers his disciples together who are fearing for their lives at that point, worried that the people who killed Jesus are going to come after them. And he tells them not to worry, but then he gives them a mission. He says, look, I have died for sins, and now anyone who believes in me can have eternal life, no matter who they are or what they have done. Go and preach that as far and as wide as you possibly can. And if you are with us last week, you saw the beginning of that, that just before Jesus goes, he says to them, go, tell everyone about me. But I don't know if you noticed last week, but his disciples asked him a question. Right after he says, look, head out from here, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Just send this gospel message as far as you can. But they asked him a question in Acts 1.6. Look at what they said. When they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're wondering, now that they realize that Jesus is the promised one. Like the guy who rises from the dead is probably the one that God was thinking of sending. He's the one who seems to be in charge of everything. And so they're like, is now the time when you're finally going to restore Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for me to tell you what times these are. Right now, you're to go out and tell everyone about me, to tell them that there is forgiveness for sins. But one day, this will happen. 
See, Jesus is saying before the kingdom is established, before God establishes his rule, his people in his place under his rule forever, that something has to be dealt with, and it's sin. He's dealt with it by the cross, and now he's telling them to go and preach and tell everyone about Jesus so that they can have their sins forgiven, so that they'll be washed clean, so that they might be brought in to this new kingdom that he will establish forever. And then we get to the end of the Bible, Revelation 20 to 21, and we read this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. There was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Many people believe that the message of the Bible about the life to come is like God's great evacuation plan. That it's kind of like a mission to Mars. This earth has become a disaster. You only need to open the newspaper or watch the TV for a minute to realize that that's the case. It's almost like God has seen that. He agrees with us. He's about to hit flush on it. But there's a way to escape it and to, to go to a new place called heaven where you'd be protected from it. That's not the vision that we have here. The vision here is that God created the earth and all the people in it, and he will return to his creation to be with them. But in order to do that, there needs to be a judgment before it. Because God is a holy God who cannot be around sin. Remember the plan? Adam and Eve were meant to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. They were meant to be fruitful and multiplying to cover the whole earth, but instead they sinned. And so God could not be in the presence of his people. He had to keep a safe distance. Just like the sun is 90 million miles away from us so that we might be a safe distance from it, God had to do the same in order that there might be time for people to repent and to believe and to follow Jesus. But God is coming back to his creation. It says there, God himself will be with his people. We're not going to heaven. Heaven is coming to earth. Heaven is where God is. God is coming back to the earth that he created and loves. But because he cannot abide sin, there is a judgment beforehand. And the terms there are terrifying. It says he's there on a white throne, a judgment throne. It says that sky flees from him. There is no place to hide from a God who owns and rules and created all things. And every person, great or small, is there. Stalin, Hitler, the peasant farmer, the school teacher, criminals, doctors, soldiers, lawyers, politicians, all will stand before the throne and give an account. And it says on that day, the books will be open. And he's not asking their opinion. They will simply be judged. Every deed will be laid bare. No case to sit and plead our argument, but simply to be judged. 
And those who have placed their faith in Christ have their names written in the book of life. And for those who don't, it says there is a second death, a death after death, a judgment, a lake of fire, depicted in the starkest of terms. Only those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus may enter the kingdom that he will establish forever. Now as you think on this, you must think, what kind of God is this? How can this be a good God? Well, the truth is, he must do this. He must judge in order to have mercy. He must judge in order to establish this kingdom forever. As weak an illustration as it is, let me try and explain it this way. In the movie Prometheus... It's a movie that's a, a prequel to the Alien trilogy, quadri- the 50 million Alien movies that came after it, and Alien vs. Predator and whatever else got thrown in the mix there. Forget all those. Before that, there's Prometheus telling the backstory of it. And the story is that they kind of head to this lonely planet to, to work out what's going on there, and they're sent on a mission. They're not fully briefed as to what's going on. And as with many sort of alien exploration movies, they have absolutely no regard for safety. They just go into this dark catacomb and start sticking their head in things and all kinds of stuff. And inevitably, someone gets infected with this alien virus. And they're coming back to the spaceship and they're carrying this one who's been infected. And they're coming back and Holloway is the guy who's been infected. And Vickers, who's leading the mission, comes out and she says, he is not coming on board. And they're like, but he's our friend. He's got to come aboard. Like, how could you do that? How could you be so heartless? And she stops him from coming on, knowing that if that disease comes on board, everyone will die. And eventually Holloway himself says, I cannot go on board. And stays off the ship, and the rest go on and are removed from him. In the same way, if God is going to start again, if God is going to establish his kingdom forever to end pain, to end suffering, human suffering, sin cannot come on board. We have to be set free from sin in order to be a part of this new creation. God cannot abide sin. He is coming back for good, and anyone who would hold on to sin cannot come through, and so there is a judgment, a lake of fire, a second death. We also might say, but isn't that, isn't that too much? Like, isn't that, hasn't God kind of overshot it here? I mean, for someone whose life, over this life, only sins for, what, let's say a good life is 80 plus years, what, to face an eternal judgment for that? Is God a maniac? Has he way overshot it? But the truth is that we know that a punishment rises with the innocence of the victim. That the more worthy of honor a person is, then the greater the crime against them. If you were to walk by someone dissecting a fly, it's a bit distasteful, and you might reprimand them. But if they were pulling apart a cat or an animal, you'd say, no, that's, that's, that's worthy of criminal charges. But if it was a human made in the image of God, you'd say, that's unthinkable. That is worthy of an enormous punishment. Because the punishment rises with the dignity of the being that has, been, uh, that has a crime committed against them. God is purest being, a holy God, like none other. And a crime against an infinitely holy God is a crime of infinite gravity. And sometimes the fact that we think too much of hell may indicate that we think too little of God. Or maybe that we think too little of sin. That we think that these are trifling matters. We live in a secular culture where the idea that something 
could be a transcendent crime or a crime against an infinite God seems absolutely ludicrous. But maybe we think too little of sin. A member at church here, Mark, is a lawyer. He was telling me this week of when he was serving as a law clerk. The very first time he was in court was a case concerning drug trafficking. And it was a man who had been in a foreign country, had run out of money, made a bad decision to, to earn some quick money by agreeing to transport a package into Australia. It seems from the evidence that he, he didn't check what was in, he didn't know what was in there, uh, but inside that was several kilos of a contraband drug, and, uh, and the punishment for it was pretty significant. So it was, on a, it was a serious case. And, uh, and Mark was recounting the, 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 um, the, judge, uh, the judge's final conclusion, and uh, the judge came out saying, look, you may, you may be thinking, look, just carrying a bag on a plane to another country is not a big deal. This is something that can be overlooked. But he said, but I sit in this courtroom day in and day out, and I see lives that have been absolutely shattered by this. I see families torn apart. I see the chaos that comes from this. And then he said this. He said, it is not just carrying a bag. It is an assault on the society that I am commissioned to protect. It wasn't just carrying in a case. It was an assault on society. Sin is not just a mistake. It is an assault on the fabric of creation, on the God who created it. It's not merely stuffing up. And we have all contributed to the brokenness of this world in sin. It is weighty, and God must be just. Look, I get it. I don't like the doctrine of hell. It doesn't immediately... When I first came to know Jesus, that wasn't the bit of the Bible. I was like, oh, that's, that resonates pretty well with me. But it's one of those areas where it's not something where I get to pick and choose. I even watched a movie earlier this week about telling the life of a guy called Bishop Carlton Pearson, who was a reasonably famous preacher who came to disbelieve in the doctrine of hell. And in being interviewed about it, he said, I don't, think, I don't think God could do that. I don't think God could be a God of hell. And I remember thinking, in one way, I get it. This is something that kind of shakes our reality. But the truth is, it's not, it's not true because I think it is or it isn't. If this is a scripture, and I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe this doctrine of hell as well. It's not just about what I think. How foolish of me it would be to go out there saying that, look, I don't think that's the case, only to find out at the end that it really is. So the truth is, God is a loving God. I mean, just consider Jesus. I mean, imagine what you would do as a father before letting your son die. Imagine all the other options you would consider. And yet God, in his love, sent Jesus to die on our behalf that we might be reconciled to him. I mean, even consider Jesus. Has anyone on earth been more loving than Jesus, who laid down his life even for the soldiers who were killing him? And yet Jesus spoke about this judgment to come more than anyone else in Scripture, and more vividly. The cross is enough for me to say, let God be God. But as grave as it is, we cannot let this steal our minds away from the salvation that's on view here as well. Look at what it says in the next chapter in, in 21. In Revelation 21, 3-7, it says, And I heard a loud voice 
from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heri- the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Think of the gravity of God being here with his people. Our secular climate has diminished our our view of the glory that is to come. One guy I was reading recently said that most Christians tend to not have much of an imagination for heaven. He's saying nearly every Christian I've spoken to has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We've settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn, one after the other, forever and ever, Amen. It's almost as if we spend so little time paying attention to what Scripture has to say about the age to come that the first thing that comes to mind is the most Christian thing I can think of is like a, the church actually gathering and just do that but times a billion. I mean, you might, you might be thinking this already feels like eternity as I go on and on, let alone actually being eternity. These views are weak and compromised. They're not going to lead to a deep excitement about the age to come. In fact, even think about this. If I were to challenge you to take an A4 piece of paper and write down all the things you are looking forward to in this life and then take another piece of paper and write down all the things that you are looking forward to in the age to come, would they compare? I was thinking about it earlier this week because I'm not sure I could fill that second page. I think it's because we've spent too little time thinking on these things. Maybe, again, the secular climate has led us to think about the here and now of the gospel rather than the, the age to come and the glories to come. I mean, look at what it says here. It says the central point is that God himself will be the joy of heaven. Part of the reason our, our view of, of heaven is so weak is because we don't think of it in terms of meeting face-to-face with God. We tend to think of, all right, what would heaven be? Heaven would be... What if I just think of all the things I most enjoy on this life and then just put those on steroids forever? So we just think, you hear people talking about heaven as like the endless rugby game, which of course is a nightmare scenario if you don't like rugby. Or the endless wave, right? The idea of like, what are some things that I enjoy but just times a billion? But of course, none of those things are very compelling because we know that there is nothing in this life that's even big enough to satisfy us over the length of this life, let alone for all eternity. Because the truth is, the things that we enjoy in this life are just a dim echo of the very source of those things, of God himself. Heaven will not be earth 2.0. God will be there. We'll meet our maker face to face. Can you imagine what that would be like? Standing before God, unveiled and immortal, the holy God. The wonder and the danger of it. Can you imagine that sense? I mean... This is the, the best way I could describe it. When you, if you've ever stepped out on a glass platform that's kind of at the, at the top of a building and you step onto it and the moment you step onto it, you usually get a surge of adrenaline because at one sense it's thrilling. You can see more than you've ever seen. You're up high. You have this sense that you should be falling and yet you're suspended in the air. And there's this kind of mix of adrenaline and wonder that go together. That will be what it's like to stand before a holy God 
to be, I'm a sinner that should be torn apart by his very presence, and yet here I am standing. It would be like standing in the sun, unsinged. The wonder and adrenaline of it. And perhaps the tension will never resolve. Then look at what it says next. So it says that God will dwell with his people, but he says he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Think of the enormity of God and this image of him tenderly wiping away a tear. Right near the eye, the most sensitive organ in the body. Then we neither be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. The pain and horror of this world will be finished forever. And there'll be no opportunity for it to return because sin and death is dealt with. Notice that it said in there, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. They are done again as well. There'll be no more death. Think of what that would feel like. The sense here is to, to give you this sense of relief, of it being over. Think about like if you were a soldier in war. Imagine the sense of relief that would overcome you when a firefight had finally finished. Right, when you, if, let's say you'd been ambushed, finally the enemy is subdued. At the end of that, there'd be a, a rushing sense of relief. But as well as that, it would be tainted by the sense that there's going to be another skirmish and then another and another. But imagine the feeling as a soldier when the end of the war is declared, knowing that there'll be no more battles, there'll be no more skirmishes. It is done and just finished. That's the relief that's here. Saying sin and death is dealt with completely, free forever in the presence of God. Never again will a dark thought run through your mind. Not only will sin out there be dealt with, but sin in here will be done with. Never again will you fear others, their violence or their opinion. Never again will you harm another. Never again will you feel the absence of your God. Never again will you be alone or weary. The great enemy of sin and death is done. You will be home. And we long for this. I suspect we long for this, not just here if you're here and a believer... I think our culture, as secular as it is, has a longing for something that has disappeared somewhere in our past. I think we see it in something even as inane as vintage culture. Just track with me with this. I was thinking on this week, so the idea of, of of kind of vintage wares or fashion or those sort of things hasn't been around forever. It's probably been at a stretch the last 20 years when it's been really massive. But there is, it's, it's pretty much everywhere at the moment. Now, why is it that we are so obsessed with reproducing the past? Why is it? That hasn't always been the case. It's not the case for every culture. Why are we so obsessed with reproducing the past? I was thinking earlier this week, I thought about, I wonder if this is the way to understand it. Imagine you walked into a house and it was a brand new modern house. Everything in it was renovated. The appliances were as up to date as they could be. But there was one single room where everything in it was at least 30 years old. If you saw that room, without saying anything or asking anything, you would probably assume that there had been a loss in the family and that that was the room of someone whose memory they were trying to preserve. That would be the logical kind of conclusion. Because when you hold on to the past, it's because there's a loss that's occurred that you're wanting to hold on to. I think the reason we are so obsessed with vintage culture is because we have a sense that something got lost somewhere back there. But what's even weirder about it is we don't know quite what. Remember someone posted, I saw a post on Facebook where someone had said, I love the 60s, and the cynical modern comment under that was, what did you love about it most, the trenchant racism or the sexism? And it was, like, it was a narky comment, but it was, it was funny in another sense because it's not like going back to the 60s was the time when absolutely everything was perfect, or whether it was the 30s or 40s. There was no era in the past where we could say, well, everything was perfect then. 
But we have this sense that somewhere in the past we lost something. We want it back. The story of the Bible says what we lost all that time ago was God. In sin, we were separated from Him. And we've been looking for the way back ever since. And no amount of secularism is going to take away that sense of longing. When God comes back, we will be home and home finally, never to be homesick again. That, that is the glory of the age to come. And so what do we need to do with this? Well, the call is to tell others the good news. If you are here and a follower of Jesus, we must make every loving, creative, intelligent effort to encourage, to warn, to compel, because Jesus is coming back. And our lives are fragile. And there are beyond number ways that our lives will be taken from us without us choosing it. But in Jesus, there is hope and there is forgiveness and there is redemption. We're called not to fall into this rhythm of a secular culture that believes there is nothing beyond this life in the here and now. We need to see that we are surrounded by immortal souls. Years ago, we used to take kids on a camp. So this was a city youth group, and we'd head out to the country for the, for the camp. And without fail, every year, the bit that struck the kids the most, especially if they hadn't been out to the country before, was the open sky at night. The fact that they could see star, more than two stars in the sky was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And it's funny because most of them say, I've never seen the stars before which of course isn't entirely true. In the city, you can still see stars. It's just that compared to what you can see out in the country, it's nothing, right? And so when people were saying they can see it, it wasn't that they couldn't see it in the city. It's like now you can see it with such perspective. It's as if they were totally different experiences. We're called to see the world around us according to this story, the story of the gospel, to see it with clarity, to see that we are surrounded, that this life is a gateway to the eternal, not full of anonymous and, a, and potentially either irritating or enthralling people, but we're surrounded by immortal souls. C.S. Lewis said it this way: he "said There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization—these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke." We work, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Every soul around you is made in the image of God. An immortal soul. We're called to see it and to see the great need to know Jesus and to know the gospel. But the second thing we need is we need to speak. The gospel is a message that is communicated by speaking. And over this next series, we're going to make every effort to communicate that as clearly as possible. We're in our small groups, in our missional communities. We're going to be going through material that's going to help us to articulate the gospel, even in our current secular climate, that we might be able to share it as widely as we possibly can. Because it is the case that many people, and often for really good reason, would never make it to a church gathering, and yet still need to hear the good news of Jesus. Still need to know what's coming. We need to make every effort Charles Peace was a prisoner, and this was from several hundred years ago, who was visited by a church chaplain and was so underwhelmed by the chaplain's presentation of the gospel that he said this to him, Sir, I do not share your faith, but if I did, if I believed what you say you believe, 
Then, although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and the breadth of it on hand and knee and think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of which you speak. A guy who was an unbeliever had a clearer perspective on the gospel than the man who was trying to share it with him. May it never be for us. The glories that are coming are so sweet and the judgment so severe. We have every motivation to make every loving act to share the gospel as far and wide as we can. Over this next series to invite, or even if no one has come with you, to be there to help those who have invited friends and family who love them dearly, that you might be a part of welcoming them and in some way sharing the gospel. To make every effort to share the gospel in every context that we can. To invite, speak, share, start a conversation, share a podcast, give a testimony, anything that we can, knowing that this is the true story of history. May I remember the words of Spurgeon. He said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap over hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Let's pray. Father God, too often our minds are drawn to the tedium of the day in and the day out. And we forget that we are part of a grand story that you are bringing to its conclusion. That you in your mercy sent Jesus to die for our sin. You have made a way to be washed clean completely, to be forgiven, to be irreversibly made new and adopted in as children of God. Father, we pray that we would be loving. That we would love like Jesus loved. That we would be humble. And that we would share the gospel and that you would give us words to speak so that we might represent you. Now, Father, we pray that you would do this, not, not that we might be free from a sense of guilt or condemnation, that we wouldn't do it out of that motivation, but for the joy of seeing people come to know the joy of the gospel and the peace that they may have in you. Father, may you do this for the glory of your name. Amen.